exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you want to know what a country values, look at what they celebrate. I'm from Lafayette, Louisiana, for instance, and that town is at the heart of Cajun country, and Cajuns are known for two things. They're super Catholic, and they love to party. So even though I wasn't Catholic, my whole world still revolved around the church calendar. Christmas, Easter, even Sunday mornings were high and holy days where the world stops in Lafayette, Louisiana. But even to prepare for Easter, Catholics practice something that's called Lent. And during Lent, you were supposed to give up something to prepare your heart for the Easter season. Lent always starts on what's called Ash Wednesday. And if you didn't grow up Catholic or around Catholics, you may have never heard of Ash Wednesday. But you've probably heard of the day that comes before Ash Wednesday, Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday in French, and in Louisiana, it became tradition to party as much as you could before Lent started, and you had to give up all of that fun stuff. And I'll say Mardi Gras in my hometown is very different than the insanity you may see in New Orleans. Lafayette Mardi Gras is very relaxed. It's family-friendly. Even the public schools give students off time for Mardi Gras. Uh, So whether you were Catholic or not, everyone got together to watch parades and to dance and to eat incredible food. You'd have crawfish boils and crawfish etouffee and jambalaya and boudin and gumbo and king cake, which is basically a giant cinnamon roll, but better. And and it's in this celebration you can sum up what what Cajuns value, having a good time with a little bit of Catholicism mixed in. Um, As Americans, there tends to be one day that stands above all others in terms of our national identity, 4th of July. We don't even call it Independence Day most of the time because we know what day it is on the calendar every year. Every year we celebrate the day when our founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence and threw off the shackles of that tyrant King George III because that was the birth of our nation. Independence defines us as a people. So every year we get together to blow up as many fireworks as we can afford and so that we can remember the rocket's red flare, the bombs bursting in air, which gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. And some of you have patriotic blood coursing through you as as you think about that. And it's in this celebration that you can sum up what Americans value. Freedom with reckless danger mixed in. A country reveals what they value and what they celebrate. So I want, I want to do something. Close your eyes real quick. Close your eyes. I want everyone to close your eyes. And imagine you are the founder of a brand new nation. You're writing a brand new constitution. And it's at this point you get to decide what holidays these people are going to celebrate. These holidays are going to continue to shape the citizens of this country for centuries to come. So let me ask, what holidays would you set in place? Well, open your eyes and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. If you're using a pew Bible, Leviticus 23 is on page 119. And as you're turning to Leviticus 23, let me remind you that in this book, the Israelites are still at the foot of Mount Sinai. The exodus from Egypt, where God freed the Israelites from slavery, was only about a month or two ago. And now the book of Leviticus was given in part 
because God was preparing his people for how they were going to live once they entered their new country, once they entered the promised land. And in Leviticus 23, we're going to find seven ritual feasts that were meant to define the Israelites as a people. And within these seven feasts, there's both reminders and promises. Each one of these feasts was designed to remind the Israelites of a time when God had been faithful in the past. And also to point forward to a time when God would accomplish what he had promised to do. And so this morning, my prayer for us is that we would be reminded of God's faithfulness in the past and that we would trust in his promises for the future. Because in Leviticus 23, we're going to find seven pictures of God's faithfulness. Seven pictures of God's faithfulness. If you look at the chapter, you see it's clearly split up into seven sections. I know it breaks all the Baptist rules. You're not supposed to have more than three points, but, but that's what the word of God said. We got seven sections, so that's what we're going to do. We have a lot of work to do, so let's, let's pray and we'll dive in. Oh Lord, on this Sabbath day, we recognize that your word is overflowing with beauty and wisdom. So as we study these high and holy days that you gave to Israel, may we be instructed on what it means to remember you as the faithful God and what it means to hold fast to all of your promises. And by the power of your spirit, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is preached. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look with me to Leviticus 1 through 3 of Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall, be wor- shall work to be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. And stop there. The first feast that God gave to the Israelites was actually a very old feast, a feast as old as time. Because not only was the Sabbath command given in the Ten Commandments, but the Sabbath actually goes all the way back to the creation. It was a reminder of when God worked for six days and created the universe and then rested on the seventh. Now, if you believe in an all-powerful God, and you just think about that for a second, you, two questions should come to our minds. First... Why did God take six days to create everything? I mean, surely isn't he powerful enough to create it in an instant? Why did he take six days? And then why did he rest on the seventh? Does God really get tired? Is he really all powerful if he needs to take a nap on the seventh day? What was going on with that? And the answer to all those questions is not that God is not all powerful, but the answer is that God was teaching us something. The Lord was modeling how humans were to work six days and then spend a day in joyful rest and worship of the Lord. That's why the Sabbath is called even a feast. The Sabbath is a celebration. It's a holy, happy reminder of when God created the universe. That if you've ever climbed one of the high peaks in the Adirondacks, you probably took a moment at the summit to stop and to slow down. You did not keep hiking as fast as you did before you got to the summit. But once you got to the top and you took it all in and you got to enjoy the beauty of the earth, you probably felt a sense of peace and wonder. The attitude of awe and grandeur was meant to be felt by the Israels every seven day as they felt this inner rest in their souls. But think about what that would have meant for the Israelites. That most people back there were farmers 
And if you grew up on a farm, you know the work is never done. And back then, if you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't farm your fields and provide for yourselves, you starve and die. So can you imagine how insane this command would have sounded thousands of years ago? Every week, every single week, a whole day where I can't go out into my fields and and crop and harvest and do all the things I need. Are you kidding me? So in this command, in this command to rest and to Sabbath, there also is a command to believe, to have faith that God would provide while you take the day off to rest and worship. I'll tell you, I, I came up with, with one of these times. When I was back in college, I was incredibly fortunate because my dad was able to pay for my entire tuition, my entire rent. Um, so for the first year and a half, college was super easy. I goofed off a lot. And I worked on the side just to pay for gas and food and, and stuff like that. I waited tables. The problem was, about halfway into my soft more year, the oil industry just tanked. And my dad is an oil and gas. We're from Louisiana. And, and so out of nowhere, suddenly I'm on my own. There's just, there's no money there to pay for anything. So I'm staring down a $6,000 tuition bill. I have no idea how I'm going to pay for it. I go to my, my boss and I, I beg for more hours. And he says, we are so cut tight. I cannot give you any more hours. And, and I was, I was desperate. I needed to make extra money, but I couldn't at my current job. But luckily I had a friend who was working at this high end seafood place. I was working at Chili's. I don't know if you've ever been to Chili's, but it's not exactly high dining. So I was looking at this high end seafood place. And I was like, wow, if I could, if I could get into that place, I could really make money. I could, I could really pay my bills. And so I go to the interview. My friend says he's going to recommend me. I had the experience of a waiter. I had great references. So the first interview flies by absolutely no problem. And at the end of the interview, the manager says, stay right here. I'm going to go get the general manager right now for a second interview. And I'm like, amazing. I really need this job. Let's go. And something, this is great. And the second interview goes great. And they're about to hire me. I'm so excited. Everything's provided for. And then they asked me about my schedule. When can we schedule you? I told them, I can't work Sundays. Any other day I, I can work, but I can't work Sundays. And the whole mood in the room shifted. And he told me, hey, everyone in this restaurant works Sundays. It's non-negotiable. It's a rule. And so I said, look, I'm a, I'm a Christian. It's just in my own uh, faith that I feel like it would be a sin for me to work on Sundays. So, so I can't do that. I'd be willing to work on Christmas or New Year's or any holiday that is not Sunday. I just can't do Sunday because that's where I'm at. And, and so he was actually gracious and he compromised. He's like three Sundays a year. You do Mother's Day, Father's Day, and Valentine's Day, which was on a Sunday that year. And that was perfectly reasonable is this guy runs a restaurant. Sunday is a busy day for restaurants. But I remember sitting there and, and I just knew in my own conscience, I, I, I would have felt guilty to work on a Sunday and to make this compromise up front. So... I said, no, I can't do that. Did not get the job. And I remember for for several days after that, I kept asking myself, how could I turn down that job? Am I being too legalistic about this thing? Why would I do that? It was such good money. I have such huge bills to pay. I don't know where I'm going to get the money. I don't know if I'm going to have to stop school or what I'm going to have to do. And and so I talked to one of my pastors and I asked him for advice. And he told me, the Lord's going to provide. And that is such a church answer, isn't it? It feels like such a cop-out. The Lord is going to provide. That is not what I wanted to hear in that moment. The next thing I knew, 
one of the other waiters at my work came into work drunk again. And finally, they fired him. And suddenly, I had all the hours I wanted. And by the kindness of God, he provided just enough for me to get by every semester so that when I graduated, I graduated debt-free. The Lord does not tell us to pray for riches. In the Lord's Prayer, we're told to pray for our daily bread. And every time that we rest from our work to come to worship, it is an act of faith saying, Lord, I trust you will provide while I'm obeying your commandments. The Israelites had to take a step of faith, trusting not in their own efforts, but in the Lord's provision. And it's not just one day out of seven. If we keep reading in this feast, they're taking off time all over the place. Uh, there is actually a, a, a stereotype of Jews in, 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 um, in Europe that they're lazy and they don't work. And the reason that stereotype arose was because they were always resting and Sabbathing. They were always following the laws of Torah. And so people thought they were lazy when really they were just obedient to the word of God. And this principle of a seven-day rest is woven all throughout the rest of these feasts. So in feast number one, we see that the Sabbath was a picture of creation. And that leads us to feast number two, the feast of unleavened bread. Look to verses four to six. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Stop there. The feast of unleavened bread was a reminder of that final plague back in Egypt. Back when God said that he would take the life of every firstborn son in every household. Except, except if that household would take a spotless lamb and slaughter it, and put its blood over the doorpost and the lintel of their house, and then eat the meat of that lamb on that night. And when the Spirit of the Lord came through Egypt, He passed over every house that was marked by the blood of the lamb, and the firstborn of the Israelites was spared. And so in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it began, it began with this reenactment of that first Passover meal where the Lord told the Israelites to eat bread without any leaven. Why unleavened bread? Why was leaven so bad? Because after that final plague, the Israelites were going to make a run for it. And they didn't have time to wait around for their bread to rise to make their getaway. And so this is, once again, this reminder of unleavened bread. It's that picture of that getaway. And so starting with the Passover meal, the Israelites were to celebrate their escape from Egypt for seven days. This would be like a week-long Fourth of July because this is the Israelites' Independence Day. And so in feast number two, we see that the feast of unleavened bread was a picture of Passover. And then in verse nine, we find a third feast. Look with me. <coughs> And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Stop there. In the feast of first fruits, God required the Israelites to bring a sheaf which just meant a bundle, like a bundle of grain or whatever crop you were growing. And this bundle comprised of the first fruits of the harvest. 
So you bring this bundle to the priest, and they would actually wave it in the air as kind of the sign to God of thank you, of thanking the heavens for sending rain and providing for them. But in addition to the sheaf, if you keep reading, they had to bring a lamb for a burnt offering, fine flour for a grain offering, and wine for a drink offering. Why were the Israelites called to give up so much? Because whose land were they farming on? It was not their land. It was the Lord's land. At this point in the story, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. They had no land. They had no farms. But God was going to bring them into the promised land, the land of Cana. And so when they got there, this feast was to be a reminder that the land did not belong to them, but to the Lord. And in this feast, we see a picture of subjects paying tribute to a king. It was a feast of thanksgiving where you thank the Lord for providing for you and protecting you as his royal subject. So in feast number three, we see the feast of first fruits was a picture of God's kingdom. And that leads us to feast number four, which took place at the end of the harvest. Look to verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. After seven full weeks from the Feast of first fruits, you had the Feast of Weeks, which was another feast of thanksgiving. Now thanking the Lord for the full harvest that had come in. You may not have heard of the Feast of Weeks, but you probably heard of its Greek name, Pentecost. If you add up seven weeks, that's 49 days. And so it was on the day after the 49 days, the 50th day, that the Feast of Weeks would come, and, and Pentecost just means 50th in Greek, and that's where it gets its Greek name. And it was at Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, that the Israelites had to bring another sheaf, more fine flour, one bull, two rams, and now seven more lambs. And do not confuse this with the tithe. The tithe was separate from that. That's a whole different thing. You see, most people don't realize that if you add up all the value of what all the Israelites were required to give, it comes out to around 23% of their income a year, which is astonishing. Why were the Israelites required to give so much? Imagine you're driving, you pull up into the McDonald's drive-thru, and you got a toddler in the back seat. You order, you pay, you get the food, and then you hand the kid their Happy Meal, and then you say to your toddler, hey, give me some fries. What's the average toddler's response going to be? No, these are mine. Who did the driving? Who ordered? Who paid? Who literally three seconds ago handed the food to the toddler? You did. And too often, when the Lord calls us to give financially. We say, no, this is mine. But ultimately, where did that money come from? Who gave you the life and breath and energy and abilities that you used to earn that money? Think about the words of John the Baptist. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And that's why in addition to giving to the Lord, if you look to verse 22, the Lord also says to give to others. Verse 22, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, meaning immigrant. I am the Lord, your God. The Israelites were supposed to leave a big chunk, this would be about 20% of the harvest back in the field. Anything that you drop, all the things around the edges so that for the poor and the immigrant, they could come and gather food for themselves. Because in Israel, God 
was requiring that his people not be greedy. The Lord was saying, I am the Lord your God, so use the food I have given you to glorify me and give to the needy. In the New Testament, we're actually not told 10%. We're not told 23%. We're not given a percentage, but we are told, be a cheerful giver. When you give, do you give cheerfully with a heart overflowing with generosity? Or do you give begrudgingly? And when you give, how often do you keep the poor and needy in mind? There's actually news this past week that that there's been this influx of refugees in New York City. And so the mayor has this plan to send refugees all throughout upstate New York. And so this verse is not theoretical for us. It may come very soon that we have the poor and the immigrant in our neighborhood. And whether you agree with the, the policy or the border, I don't care. The point is when the immigrant is in your neighborhood, you care for them and you love them and you sacrifice for them. And that's the wisdom principle of the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks was a picture of the harvest. And that leads us to feast number five, the Feast of Trumpets. Or you may have heard it called Rosh Hashanah. Look to verses 23 through 25. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, in the seventh month on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Naturally, if you've been paying attention, seven's like the holiest number in the Bible. So of course, the seventh month seemed like the holiest month of the Hebrews calendar. And the last three feasts of this chapter all take place in the seventh month. And it started with the Feast of Trumpets, which is the first day of the month. So in some ways, this was like the Israelites' New Year's because this feast marked the end of one agricultural year and the beginning of another one. I think it's even how we understand the school year, that we understand, yeah, December 31st, that is the end of our calendar year, but school year starts and ends on its own schedule. And for, for the, the fields and the harvest, this year was ending and beginning. So Rosh Hashanah, the trumpets, was this announcement of a new year to come. The seventh month was basically the beginning of the Israelites' summer vacation. The harvest is done, we can relax, this is a big day for resting. But trumpets in the Old Testament are significant because the first time we read about the sounding of trumpets was back in Exodus 19. And the trumpets served to announce the coming of the presence of the Lord God Almighty. And when the trumpets were sounded in Exodus 19, the cloud of the glory of the Lord covered Mount Zion. Every time this holy month kicked off, in the Feast of Trumpets, there was a picture of God's arrival of his presence being among the Israelites. Prepare yourself. The spirit of Yahweh is coming. And that leads us to what I would argue is the most important feast of this list. Look to verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. You may have heard it called Yom Kippur. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, the person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. 
It shall be to you a Sabbath, a solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. Some of you may remember that several weeks ago, we, we studied Leviticus 16, where it explained the Day of Atonement, which was the one day of the year where the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies. Tradition tells us that the high priest of Israel would only say the covenant name of God one day of year. They would only utter Yahweh's name on the day of atonement when they were entering the tent of meeting. And so to prepare the people, they were to rest on the ninth day and spend it afflicting themselves. What does that mean? It probably meant a time of self-examination and solemn repentance, a time for fasting and sober meditation on God's word. And chapter 16 gave us a detailed account of what the 10th day of the month would look like. But let me just remind you, you have two goats. One goat was to die and to purify the people through its blood and purify the tabernacle. And the other goat was to carry the sins of the people outside the camp, outside of the gates, into the wilderness. And the reason I say that this is the most important feast is because this ritual was at the heart of Hebrew worship. This was the way for the people to be purified so that as a nation, Israel could play host to the almighty creator of the universe. That the God of the universe could dwell in their midst. And so in the sixth feast, we see that the day atonement was a picture of purification. Which leads us to the final feast, the feast of booths, or sometimes called the feast of tabernacles. Look to verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying on the 15th day of the seventh month and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. So just five days after the day of atonement, we're still in the seventh month. Another feast is already underway. And to be honest, this, this one sounds like the most fun to me. It's essentially a seven day camping trip with your family. A booth was essentially a makeshift hut hut that you made out of branches and trees and leaves. And so on day one of the feast, you would gather your materials to make your little makeshift tent. And that's why if you look to verse 40, it says this. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Now, this is where the Garden of Eden should just be jumping off the page for you. That there are echoes of Eden all throughout the book of Leviticus and just how Adam and Eve ate fruit in the garden that they did not plant, they did not water. It was just there for them. They ate uh, fruit from the garden from all these splendid trees planted by a river that ran through the garden. The Israelites were to eat fruit that they had not labored for. And then they were back in a little garden. They were to take the leaves and to make a little tent. And and it was this reminder of the Garden of Eden. Um, So they're living in a little mini Garden of Eden again. And then they were to party as if they were back in the Garden of Eden. So verse 42 says, You shall dwell in the booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. The whole wilderness journey was meant to lead the Israelites into the promised land, which was pictured as this new garden of Eden. The land of Cana was designed to be the place where the people of God could establish a nation, 
a nation where God and man could dwell together through the temple and through the priests and through the offering and even through these appointed feasts. And the Israelites were to never forget that this land was supposed to be a holy place. They were never supposed to forget how they got to this land. Because in the seventh feast, we see that the Feast of Booze was a picture of Israel's wilderness journey. But let me, let me remind you, that is not all that it was a picture of. Remember, not only did each of these feasts remind the Israelites of God's past faithfulness, but they also pointed forward to the time when God would accomplish his promises. Because every one of these feasts, in one way or another, ultimately points to Jesus. Let me explain. For instance, it was in the wilderness that God caused bread to fall from heaven to satisfy the Israelites' hunger. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, we meet a man in John 6 who says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate the bread in the wilderness and they died. But I am the living bread who comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And that's the end of chapter 6. Beginning of chapter 7 is the Feast of Booze. Jesus attends the Feast of Booze, the very feast that celebrated the time in the wilderness where God caused water to pour out from a rock to quench the thirst of the Israelites. And so Jesus stands up during that feast and declares with a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then later at that same feast, that same feast that celebrated the time when God guided the Israelites by a pillar of fire, Jesus again stood up and he preached saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then we think again about the Day of Atonement because the book of Hebrews makes the case that Jesus is the true and better Day of Atonement. Because not only was he the scapegoat who carried our sins away because he carried his cross outside the city gates and was slain there, but after he died, he ascended to heaven to purify for all time the heavenly temple, that temple not made with human hands, so that by his sacrifice and by his blood, Christ could make perfect all who would believe and Jesus is not just the true and better day of atonement, but he's also the true and better Passover. Because when we read about the Passover feast, I'll tell you, even new believers pick up on that. It's so clearly pointing to Jesus that he is our ultimate Passover lamb to come. That in the same way that Passover lambs were slain so that the Israelites might be protected by the blood of the lambs, so Jesus was slain so that we might be saved by the blood of the lamb. And that's why of all the days on the calendar that God could have chosen for Jesus to die, of all the days on the calendar, it was the sovereign will of God that he was slain on the Friday of Passover. That at the very moment when the lambs at the temple were being slain in mass, the lamb of God was being slain on the cross. And that's why John the Baptist called Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it was also by the sovereign hand of the Lord that, that the year Jesus was crucified, <clears throat> that was also the year that the Feast 
of unleavened bread overlap with another feast because the Sunday following that Passover also happened to be the feast of first fruits. And I don't think it was by accident that Christ rose from the dead on the feast of the first fruits. It was by design so that we could be told in 1 Corinthians that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In the same way that the first fruits signified a coming harvest. So Christ's resurrection signified a harvest of resurrections to come for all who would believe in him. And then, of course, we get to the Feast of Weeks. By the time that we get to Pentecost, the harvest begins to be gathered because it was at Pentecost that God poured out the Holy Spirit and the, on the apostles and 3,000 people believed in Jesus and were baptized and were added to the church. And that moment, that momentum, that harvest has never stopped. That's why Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pentecost marked an abundant spiritual harvest in which men and women would be ransomed from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people. And now we as believers, we wait for that final feast, the feast of trumpets to sound from heaven, just like they did at the feast of trumpets. Because when Christ returns in glory, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend and the almighty God will come from heaven to earth and Jesus will come back for a second time. Every one of these feasts ultimately points to Christ. For in the gospel, Christ is our Passover lamb. He is our scapegoat. He is our bread, our light, the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, our Messiah. This morning, my prayer for us was that we'd be reminded of God's faithfulness in the past so that we'd be able to trust his promises in the future. Because in Leviticus 23, we found seven pictures of God's faithfulness. So you're probably wondering now, okay, so what does that look like now as Christians? Are we to now follow these feasts and begin to practice a day of atonement and begin to live in booths once a week for a year? And those are great questions. And this morning, I have four pastoral charges for you. I have four ways that we can remember God's faithfulness and trust in his future promises. First pastoral charge, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Christ is the true and better everything. He is the ultimate fulfillment of everything we read about this morning. And if you are not a Christian this morning, let me say something. I'm so glad you're here. I am so glad you're welcome here at this church. But let me challenge you with something. How can this book be man-made? How can this book be so beautifully designed so that Christ is perfectly pictured in the Old Testament, even in these strange ancient ritual feasts? It's only by the hand of an almighty, sovereign God that this could come about. And what that means is that God is real and we are accountable to him. There will be a day when we will be judged by our creator for every evil act that we've ever committed. But the good news is that Jesus took on flesh He lived the perfect life that you failed to live. He died the death that you deserve. He rose from the grave to defeat death. And he has ascended to the right hand of God Almighty to intercede on our behalf, to intercede for all who would believe. So today, turn from your sin and put your faith alone in this perfect Messiah. Second pastoral charge, honor the Lord's day. Honor the Lord's day. 
in Christ, every one of these feasts have been fulfilled so that while we can still learn from them and profit from studying them, we're no longer bound to keep them because Christ is the true and better version of every one of these feasts. There is one exception, however. There is one feast that stands above all others in Leviticus 23, which is the Sabbath command. The Sabbath command is older than God's covenant with Moses because the Sabbath command was established at creation. But don't get me wrong, even the Sabbath command has been radically transformed by Christ's coming because when Christ rose from the grave on a Sunday, ever since then, Christians have gathered on Sunday to worship the risen Christ. No longer on Saturday celebrating creation, but on Sunday celebrating new creation, new life, resurrection. That's why Sunday is called the Lord's Day. That's why Sunday has often been called the Christian Sabbath, because we're still called to rest and to worship one day in seven. And by this picture we see here in the Christian Sabbath, we're no longer focused on creation, but new creation. Because not only is Sunday now a reminder of Christ's resurrection, but our Sunday rest is a picture of that eternal rest that all the saints of God will enter into in heaven. So honor the Lord's day. Third pastoral charge. Remember all the ways the Lord has been faithful. Remember all the ways the Lord has been faithful. These feasts were meant to shape the lives of the Israelites so they would live as God's people. And, and the way that it shaped their lives was primarily by reminding the people over and over and over again how God had already delivered them and already answered prayers and already kept his promises. Too often when we go to the Lord in prayer, and let me tell you, he delights when we go to him in prayer. Too often we, we beg him to solve our problems and then we forget when he answers that prayer. We forget, we forget when we were so desperate to ask God for something and then we forget when he answers it. And too often we doubt whether God will provide primarily uh, because we forgot just how he's provided for us in the past. We forget and doubt because we've forgotten how he has provided in the past. That's even why as Christians, Peter warns us in 2 Peter, that Christians grow cold when we forget what Jesus has done for us through the gospel. That when you're struggling with doubt and self-control and bitterness, it's because you've become nearsighted and you've forgotten that you've already been cleansed from your former sins. You've forgotten how Jesus has saved you and redeemed you. Now listen, we never outgrow our need for the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. All growth and faith and endurance in the Christian life is merely a byproduct of remembering what God has done for you through Christ. Final pastoral charge. Trust in the Lord's future promises. Trust in the Lord's future promises. Jesus said in John 5, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And for those who are raised to everlasting life, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that our resurrection is still to come. That there is a day coming when Jesus will make all sad things untrue. So trust in his promises about the future, knowing that he has been faithful in the past. And on that note, let's pray. O Lord of time, 
We thank you for your divine word and for the wonders we've seen in it this morning. As we leave this place, may we live lives that honor you with our time. And above all, may we glorify Christ in all we do. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Horkin Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.